So today what's happening is, now that we've, we've, we've done that, so triple threat Sunday, so we've had the social, um, we've had the award ceremony, and then today we're kicking off um, our new series, one which I think is going to be, when the whole series plays out, probably one of the most dynamic series we've ever done at City Hill. Um, we're going to be doing a series called Christian Lives Matter. And the reason for this series is going to be, once again, a triple threat. I don't know why I'm doing everything in threes. Maybe it's the Trinity. But um, the reason we're going to be doing it in this manner is today we're going to start off by looking at Black Lives Matter matters. And the reason for that is because that was the whole inspiration behind our series. But also because as a church at City Hill, one of the things that matters to us more than anything is that our words will lead to action and that there'll be a pairing and a marriage between um, some churches have a heavy reliance on a theological word that gets used, well, a Christianese word that gets used called orthodoxy, which means right thinking. But then there's another word which also gets um, ignored a lot, which is orthopraxy, which is right doing. And so what happens is they tend to rely on, as long as you believe and say the same things as me in a debate and in a discussion, everything's gravy. But like what you do the rest of the time, how you live your life, this, this um, amazing kind of chasm appears. And actually believe is, is a verb, it's a doing word. So actually what you say you believe in terms of an ideology and a way of thinking, and actually how your actions play out, um, they can't ever be divorced. They have to be in a marriage together for things to actually work. And so we wanted to start off um, this series because we felt so inspired by it and our, what we're gonna do about the Christian genocide is birthed out of what we believe is um, the saddest hashtag ever that it has to exist. The best hashtag ever, because change has to come. And the worst hashtag ever, because we've realized actually how many races there are just by seeing the responses to it on social media. And um, sadly, we found ourselves as a church in a bit of a crossfire over it because people misunderstood what we were saying by Christian Lives Matter. They interpreted it as like a all lives matter, like we're an anti-hashtag. We're not an anti-hashtag, we're fully Black Lives Matter, 110% but we cannot ignore the genocide in Iraq and in Syria where Christians are being wiped off the face of the country. Um, we cannot ignore that men are being killed, their wives and daughters taken, um, um, raped and kept as sex slaves. We can't ignore that. We won't ignore that. And we won't ignore Black Lives Matter either. We will tackle both. Uh, we believe the world is capable of more than one conversation at a time. And so we're gonna be um, looking into that conversation. So the first part of what we're going to be talking about today, and I mean, really, there's so much to talk about, we can't do it in a week. Um, so I'm not going to do any of this justice, and I apologise for that up front. But in the UK, the deaths following contact with police from 1990 to present day are 1,577. Uh, one third are black and ethnic minorities, despite making up 14% of the population. No officer has ever been charged, prosecuted, and found guilty regarding a death. None of the above stats include domestic violence cases or suicide. Obviously, if someone's battered someone black and blue in a domestic violence case, and then the police officer turns up, you, can, uh, you can't really, you know what I mean? Like, you can't attribute that necessarily to him. Um, We've got really public cases, I think the biggest ones really in, in UK-wide, we're talking about is like Mark, Mark Duggan and Sarah Reid, um, although there's many, many more than that. I'm just picking up the two uh, that have got the most coverage. And the Mark Duggan one, I found, um, well, I found both of them extremely disturbing. They're both horrible cases. But Mark Duggan really got me um, because of the media usage of, of that photo of him um, looking vexed and he's at his daughter's graveside. 
which if you caught a photo of me, if Eden was ever to, to be killed or to die, and you caught me at her graveside, if you think I'd be the most happy man in, in the building, and if you think I wouldn't be sitting there looking vexed as well, um, I feel that's, I, I felt that was really just unbelievably distasteful by the media um, in how they portrayed him um, and, and how he was treated and how the whole case was handled, how all the evidence suggested there should be, things should be taken further, how no, no gun was ever really found that he's meant to have had on his person. Um, but there is, in some, in some slightly comforting way, morbid kind of way, there is some respite. If you remove the deaths in prison and detention centres, um, then the death toll for black um, and other ethnic minorities goes down to 10%, which is 4% below the number when you look at it representing the country. Um, but we can't ignore those deaths. But David Cameron, whilst in office, um, raised a very important um, topic, which actually I felt was one of the best things I've ever seen a prime minister do, in my honest opinion. And that was, he said this statement, black young men are more likely to go prison than university. And um, I remember when he said that statement, a lot of people got really offended about it. But I, for one, was extremely happy that a prime minister for once was talking about an issue and attempting to start a conversation to solve an issue. Because if we can solve the number of deaths that are taking place in prison, which reflectively, the number of black and ethnic minorities in prison is considerably higher. So the reason those deaths being there would be higher than other races makes sense because the vast majority in there are of different races and minorities. So the bigger question is, what can be done to create opportunity? What can be done um, to reduce those going in? And for prison, prison numbers should be more reflective of the society we're in as well. Because we all know the color of our skin doesn't bring out genes within a person that has certain behavioral patterns. Um, or doesn't do any of those things. So the, the biggest issue to be tackled, other than the individual stories, because all the individual stories are all devastating and are all horrible, but what, what I want to see is I want to see a nation that talks about these issues. I want to see a nation that actually comes up and a government that comes up with solutions to these issues. Um, because often what we do is we have a disaster that takes place, we get all upset about it, some money goes to a charity, but then eventually the funding will get cut to it because no one ever thinks that, no one celebrates what gets prevented. People only ever focus on the tragedy. So like, say you have a mental health charity, all of a sudden mental health statistics go down. Um, they don't celebrate that that charity is probably responsible and they just go, well, we don't need that anymore and they cut the funding. What I'm excited about, and gutted that he's now not in office, but Theresa May so far of how she's talked about um, challenges in society, I really hope she carries the baton on that, because actually that's a, a huge, significant um, thing that needs to be tackled. If we tackle the issues, the issues leading to young black men being in prison, we will bring the death toll under what will be a reflection of the population. We need to continue this discussion amongst ourselves as a church and the wider UK um, to try and come up with issues and solutions ourselves. I think if we always wait on government, I don't think that's very helpful because if you've seen the kind of MPs that exist, you'll realise why that's not helpful. Um, this statistic um, was passed on to me by a friend. I haven't had the time, I'm afraid, to, to, to check this, but um, it's kind of realistic to me. 88% um, of white people in Britain don't have a meaningful relationship with someone of a different race or religion. If you let that sink in for a moment, you can see where there might be a huge chasm and a huge problem. If you have 88% of the predominant race 
not having meaningful relationships with someone of another race or ethnic minority or religion, you can understand how things get lost in translation. You can understand how a culture can get misunderstood when you hear about something over there that you know nothing about. When you hear about a situation and then you, you give a blasé attitude response and things get said because you don't know anything about it. And you can't be a part of a solution you don't know anything about other than the media or whoever. And if the media are going to present Mark Duggan in that way, well, we can't trust the media to give us the correct advice. And we can't tr trust the police findings because Hillsborough taught us that. Uh, the, if we trust police findings, then Liverpool fans are still to blame for the 1996 deaths. And it took, oh, oh God, I don't even want to talk about the years it took to get justice for their names to be cleared. For fans who came home from a match that have had the whole country singing at them every year afterwards when they go to matches, that it was their fault. And um, they were just crammed in a stadium. If we take that and then we apply that to some of the racial issues we find, well, we can't trust the police's opinion. Um, don't get me wrong, I think there's fantastic police officers do a fantastic job. Um, <laughs> like that ambulance going past. It's not, I was thinking, the police are coming, they really don't like my talk, it's not even live yet, how is this happening? Get it shut down. No, but we, we, we legitimately can't trust the media and we can't necessarily trust the police on how they report on these things. But if we focus on that one statistic, then straight away we have something here which actually isn't sexy to report on. You won't see any headlines saying 88% of white people in the UK don't have meaningful relationships with people of different... You know what I mean? It's just, it's not a sexy story. Who's going to report that one? Well, The Guardian have resorted to clickbait, so we've got no one left. So this is not going to happen. Um, I believe one of the biggest challenges for the UK is that statistic. The police do make mistakes. There are racist officers. Race is an issue. Some have died in the UK for the colour of their skin. But the biggest issue is that last statistic. If we solve that, we can take leaps and bounds moving forward that can help solve um, the devastation that we currently live in. Um, so just focusing on that... that, that um, statistic. As a church at City Hill, we are committed fully to not just preaching or talking about something or a teaching that we will get to the Bible. We've got some amazing stuff to read about today. But actually, we're committed to doing something. And you see, that statistic, um, if you can change public opinion and if you can take ownership of your own responsibility, there's, there's things that we can do. So one of the things that I've been discussing with um, one friend, and we're going to have our own conversation as a church whether we want to do this or not, because it's not a case of this is an idea that I've had, it is the be all and end all. Someone else can have a much better idea than me. But I think something that would be good is I think putting on um, interracial mixing events to document and to film and for people to have that dialogue, not filming the conversations, because when TV has done it in the past, I felt quite uncomfortable watching it because they've shown conversations with two people and somebody who doesn't know anything says something really offensive to that person and then you know it's all been seen on TV, everyone's seen it, that guy's life is over and really he needs to have that conversation as do other 88% of the white population need to have that conversation and need to learn so we can all move forward. So just getting people together, having dialogue, conversation, talking about differences, some probing questions and then at the end filming people on their response to how they found that, what they experienced, what was going on for them. Um, so that's something that I think we can do as a church and I think not only doing that here but doing a pilot, testing out, seeing how that goes, packaging it up and sending it out to other churches to host that, to be hubs within their community and engaging in the dialogue and the conversation. 
because I think that's um, something that's greatly missing. So that's something that we're looking at. When we think of America, we see another story entirely. Ada. Yes, Eden. That is, that's what I'm trying to say, Andrew or Dada at the same time. Um, so, so um, before we started City Hill, like literally just, I think, months before, um, I remember Jody and I spent Christmas in New York and we were with her family in Baltimore. And we're all together and um, Jody's family, if you haven't noticed, Jody's black, just throwing that out there for a, for a little one. And then we're all sitting there together and they just started cussing me. They started cussing me because they're going like, oh yeah, I couldn't come to the UK, man. Like these guys in Baltimore, they're like, oh, you're police running around with whistles and truncheons and you know, who's going to take that seriously? And they were just going joke after joke after joke after joke. And then I had this moment where um, I was like, well, actually, like Baltimore, New York, New York especially, um, Sorry, so someone I know. Um, Baltimore, especially in New York. Um, actually, I'm quite happy of our police. I was like, because my child's going to be um, mixed race. And one day, my kids, and if I have a boy one day, because men generally tend to get um, hurt by police more often, but women do as well, we've seen sadly. Um, you know, he's going to get battered up, thrown in prison. I'll go collect him, and I'll collect my money in court and um, we'll move on with our lives after suing them to pieces. But sadly, you might be having a funeral, mate. Like, think about this for one second. Your kid will be reaching for his wallet to show his ID that they've requested, and they'll kill him. Kill him. Doing what you've said to do. That's, that's the difference in the conversation. So in the UK, we do have some cases which are absolutely tragic, but generally, um, live to sue another day, new James Bond film. There you go, you get that one for free. Um, and um, I just remember it just killed the conversation in the room when everyone just realised, like, wow, I wish our police had whistles and truncheons. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, but it's stark. Now, New York Times reported that a study was done, and for this I've lost all respect for the New York Times, on 1,332 shootings between 2000 and 2005, they found that there was no racial bias in police shootings. Wait for it. The problem with the findings was they were based on police reports. In that case, like I said earlier, Hillsborough is still Hillsborough and it's still the Liverpool fans' ports because the police said so. So if the police are meant to be the abusers, I think you might need to hear the other side as well before you quite throw that one down. But no, the New York Times published that as if gospel. Um, there's no bias whatsoever, the police said so. Of course, um, yeah, that's ridiculous, but in 2015, um, which showed us that young black men are five times more likely to be shot by the police in the US than white men of the same age. Um, five times. 2016 looks probably set to be similar on the current trajectory, maybe a little bit less. 2015 Bureau for Investigation said the police were probably misreporting the figures and those killed were probably meant to be twice as high. Um, whites and Hispanics are still the group most likely to be shot and killed. But the bit that stood out to me the most, which really, and this was the most horrifying thing I read when I looked at statistics for America, is um, unarmed black men are more likely to be shot and killed than white Hispanics. And it was about five times again. So you can completely comply and you are five times more likely than any other race to be killed. Actually, that's not quite true. There's actually one race in America that actually have the worst statistics of all. And actually, this is really tragic because no one in the media is talking about it. If you go to the Guardian website in the UK, they keep an up-to-date killing record 
and they keep the ethnicities all listed just watching America and they've been and they dig them up so they get ones that they don't actually acknowledge they do a really good job but actually Native Americans Native Americans are the most killed people in America um, and no one gives a rat no one gives a rat um, and actually like yeah I just I feel for Native Americans because um, no one cares when they die by the police um, no one cares about them politically. You see white people with placards saying against immigration signs. A Native American guy walks by in this one video I saw and goes, we never invited you here. Yeah. <laughs> we didn't invite you. Go away. And the guy carries on with his placard. I mean, at that point, I'd have been like, oh, yeah, fair play, mate. mate. Maybe I'll go home. But no, he, he carries on with his sign. I was just like, what a douche. Um, yeah, thanks, Eden. I appreciate that. Laughed in the background. But yeah, Native Americans, so they're not just killed by the police, they're also politically irrelevant. Um, no one in America really cares about them. And, and that, that really, really hit me. That is, yeah, absolutely sucks. Um, we've all seen the disturbing footage of innocent black men asked for ID, complying and killed on camera. And we've had this drawing out where it's like, well, we know this is happening, it's an issue, but that's not the whole story. You know, police have a really fearful job and they, they fear for their lives. And um, we always hear that again and again. And then you see the videos. You go, if there was a video proving it, then there's a video proving it. Then it was like, yeah, but if he was more compliant. And then we had the video of the guy more compliant. And it's like, well, what are you saying now? Like, are we going to do something about this, please? And um, no, still nothing um, really, really happens. I think the thing that upsets me the most, and I hope any budding American politician listens to this, like, please, at the next scenario, because sadly there will be another one. It's not... Um, if it's when, please, please. It's really easy to get a really good paying job in America because you just get involved in politics, even at the lowest level, do a desk job, and the next time this happens, get in front of a camera and throw out some passionate words. Any passionate words, any will do, any will suffice. Because all everyone says is, they say like really like sterile statements. Like, well, we'll have to see what happens. I know what appears in the footage, but we'll have to wait for an investigation. All sterile, hospital. Like you can taste the, you can taste the, uh, it's just like, there's no like, just go with the outrage and go, well, if we're proved wrong later and a new video comes out and he stood there winding him up for the last 20 minutes and saying, when to kill your family. Like, geez, okay, cool, I might backtrack but just some passionate words, like this is an outrage, this is a disgrace. I'm fully with the black community if you're not black, or if you are black, like clenched fist in the air in the video would really be a good one. Like, yeah, a bit of that, Whoa. that little bit of that, that would help. Or, you know, throw out, I have a dream and just reuse it, reuse it. It will still make it in the mainline press and you could double your salary really quickly, even if you're that selfish and don't care about changing the world, you could earn a big paycheck, and I hope someone does. But when we look at these scenarios, I think we're left with one of two options, really. We either have to look at the police as being completely 100, that do this, not all police, the police officers involved, as 100% racist, or we have to talk about um, new terminology, and I don't want to use the correct word for this because it could get pronounced wrong on the audio, and then after the grief I had on Facebook for Christian Lives Matter, that really would be the end of me. Um, but um, I think people talk a lot about Islamophobia, 
Um, I don't know anyone who has a, 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 an irrational fear of Islam. I don't. I haven't met anyone yet. If anyone else has in the room, please let me know. But I think we can talk about quite a few police officers that if they aren't inherently racist and they're saying they're not racist and doing what they do, well, they've got to have blackophobia, really, haven't they? They've got to be so fearful for their lives that they've seen a black person in the flesh in front of them that they just, they just couldn't, they just, that was the only option before them. Fear completely consumed them. I'm definitely gonna die in this situation because the things that we've witnessed, shared on social media, that have been proven to be true, just beggars belief. You can't kill someone who's doing what you've told them to do. It's just, it's, it's just mind blowing. And it's probably the most depressing entrance we've ever had to a talk at City Hill. So I apologize for that, and it's probably why I'm drinking red wine while I speak this Sunday. But one has to get for it somehow. So today we're looking at Luke chapter 9, um, and verse 28 is where we're going to start. Because obviously, once you've been talking about racism in the world, the place to start is the transfiguration. It is just the most logical passage to go to. Someone shining on a hill really white. Now about eight days after these sayings, he took with him Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And as he was praying, the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became a dazzling white. And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure. Um, so he's on this mountain, man of transfiguration, the glory shines through, Moses and Elijah are there having a chat, that's fantastic. Um, and then we're going to skip straight ahead to verse 49. I'm not going to read straight through in the context just because I said a lot at the beginning. I want to condense things a bit. John answered, um, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does not follow with us. Or if you read the NIV, he's not one of us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for one who is not against you is for you. When the days drew near for him to go and be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans who made preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them and they went onto another village as they were going along the road someone said to him i will follow you wherever you go jesus said to him foxes have holes and birds have air um, of the air have nests but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head to another said follow me but he said lord let me go first and bury my father and jesus said to them leave the dead to bury their own dead but as for you go and proclaim the kingdom of god yet another said i will follow you lord but let me first say well to those at my home. Jesus said, no one puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. So we've got a few things going on there. I had to skip out a chunk in the middle just to condense things. Um, but ultimately what I want to pick on is this, is four things. There's just four things we're going to look at today. The first one in Luke um, 9.28, we see this conversation in the, in the transfiguration and he's talking to Moses and Elijah. Now in the book of Malachi, you've got four chapters. The first three chapters are talking about the law and kind of like this whole Moses thing going down. And then the last chapter, it talks about the promise that um, Elijah would come. And then after that, the day of the Lord. And then the book kind of ends. So in this moment, um, you have like this coming together, like the fulfillment of kind of like Malachi. You've got the author of the law, um, obviously the author is God, but the guy who kind of like was chiseling 
um, away in Moses and everything that he represents, having a conversation with Jesus. And then you've got Elijah, who is there, who is the one who it says in Malachi would turn the people's hearts back to God. He would be involved in that. Um, and then he's standing there and they're talking with him about his departure, about his departure. Now, when you read that in kind of the English language, as we do, because we're English, um, you skip something. You see, the word that is used for departure in Greek, um, it's not that, it's Exodus. It's Exodus. So he's standing with Moses and Elijah talking about his Exodus. And his Exodus is pretty dope. Because Exodus delivered the children of Israel from slavery into freedom and new life where they received the law, which was Moses' is, is, is gig, by the way, and this instruction on how they were to live. And they were saved from that issue of slavery. Now, Jesus, as we've talked about so many times in the city here, when they broke bread and when they, they poured the wine, um, he said, this is my body and this is my blood. These emblems, which were associated with Passover and was associated with um, the whole Exodus story, he says is about him. And then he doesn't say, do some remembrance of Egypt. He says, do some remembrance of me. And the reason he's saying this is because it's all about his Exodus. And his Exodus delivers all people throughout all time for all generations from the slavery of sin. Because your sin is your sin and my sin is my sin and your sin is going to be different from mine. But he delivers every single one of us. And so here on this mountainside, he's talking about an exodus. Now, as we move on to the other passage that we're talking about from um, verse 49, um, John says this thing. He says, Master, Master, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he does, he's not one of us. But Jesus said to him, do not stop him for one who is not against you is for you. Now they had this, they were part of a culture that saw this really strong divide about the children of Israel, we're it, everyone else isn't it, and this differentiation. And they were very focused on seeing who was one of them, who wasn't one of them. And so they were like, well, we're the followers of Jesus and bang, they're out there. I think so often, and I think especially about the issue we're talking about, is so often we see people and we put people outside of our sphere and outside of situations, they're not quite one of us. And Jesus with his disciples is like, well, are they against you? Do they actually disagree with the core values that you live your life by and what actually matters to you is your real principles? Well, no, he goes, well, they're not against you, are they? So they actually are for you. So they actually are one with you. And you don't find out that until you spend time with people. Um, hence the 88% statistic and how devastating that is. And then we move on to verse 51 of the same chapter. And he is heading to Jerusalem, but he goes past a Samaritan village, which means he isn't heading the right way. <laughs> um, Jesus hasn't gone the way to Passover from where he was that everyone else was kind of following on the highway. And it's not because Jesus has a better sat-nav than everyone else. And he's like, I'm going to cut the traffic, guys. Check this out. Boom, Samaritan village. No. Um, he's leaving, and he's just heard that his disciples have an ability to look at people and go, sorry, you're not quite one of us. So he's going to go, let me take you on a guided tour of what not quite one of us looks like, and we're going to get you some real hands-on experience. So what Jesus doesn't do is he doesn't say to them, okay, here's the things you need to know, how to be racially sensitive, and how to accept people from different groups and different types to you, and Here's a little mixer, let's do an icebreaker game. He goes, I'm just sending you guys ahead of me to get me a place to stay. By the way, you're going to the town that hates us. Uh, they're Samaritans. Um, we've had a history of a, like bitterness for about over a thousand years, give or take now. Um, see you later, guys. So they go there. He sends the messengers. They get there. No one will receive him. He's a bivocational rabbi. 
They would always stay at different people's houses and everyone would be like, oh my gosh, Rabbi's staying at my house, this is awesome. It's like when the Wimbledon tennis players from all over the world divulge on Wimbledon and I, I mixed with a few kids at school who were mega rich, had these huge houses and sometimes tennis stars would stay in their house or rent out one of their other properties and stay there. It's kind of like that, everyone's coming in, it's like, oh, oh, Passover's coming and, and the uber cool rabbi's coming to stay. I know none of you guys can get excited about that, but for them it was a big deal, just trust me on that. And so Jesus sending people out, they'd think like, oh, place is guaranteed. And then he goes, we're going to the Samaritan village. And they're like, no, why are we doing this? And so then he sends them and so they go, nothing happens. They get a bit upset. And so what they do is um, James and John, who are known as the sons of Zebedee, which translates as Sons of Thunder, which is more like a biker gang um, than a disciples. They said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? That's like a kind of like, well, that escalated quick. <laughs> you know, I sent you guys out to find me a holiday inn, a place to stay. They're talking about bringing down fire. And for us reading that, we're kind of like, geez, that escalated really quickly. Did not see that coming. And um, sometimes we read through the Bible and we're like, we don't pause and go ask the question, what the heck just happened? Like, right? What just happened? So what they're referring to is they're referring to um, Elijah. Elijah had some issues with um, the Samaritans. And also there's different points in the history where different rulers led the people astray. And they were from Samaria. And there was a big beef. And there was a time when Elijah was like, oh, yeah, well, come on, call down fire. Woo! Call down loads of fire. Then someone else comes. And then they're about to get consumed. And the next guy and the next guy's like, no, please don't kill me. And he's like, oh, yes, respect for the Lord. Done, though. And that's the end of the beef. So like when James and John are saying this, they're saying, like, come and fall down fire, blood. Who do these guys think they are? Can't talk to us this way. Just like they don't know our postcode. You know what I mean? That's what this is. This is postcode wars and the Samaritan Israeli postcode wars a couple of thousand years ago. That's what's going on in this passage. And so they're going to call down fire. And he but he turned and rebuked them and then sent them to another village. He's like, we're gonna keep this experiment going. You guys need to learn some stuff. Uh, that is awesome, man. That is so, so, so awesome. And so Jesus, leading up to his death, his resurrection, his ascension, feels like he needs to teach his guys some methods in race relations. And he wants them to understand because ultimately he does call an apostle called Paul later who he sends to the Gentiles. But he needs these guys to know which side they need to be backing. That when this weirdo turns up saying the gospel's for everybody, they're going to remember, yeah, it is. It really is, because our Jesus, we saw him with these Samaritans, we saw him with a woman, we saw him with this guy, we saw him talking to these people, and we remember when we shouldn't have even been going this way, and he sent us, and he made us go there, he made us reach out, he made us connect. Um, and then lastly, and when we look at um, 57, verse 57 onward, and there's all these different conversations along the way, and it's incredible, because you see, everything we've been reading has been tribal, it's all tribal. These people are in, those people are out. In, out, in, out, in, out. And then he just finishes this chapter off with these, these, these statements. I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus said to him, foxes have holes, birds have, of the air have nests. The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. So he's saying it's not to do about location, it's not to do about sight. It's all to do about following him. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me go bury my father. And he said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at my home. All these things are kind of reasonable things. But Jesus is laying out a clear picture to his disciples. And that is this. It's not this group. It's not that group. It's not your family. It's not your family that identifies you. It's not your heritage that identifies you. It's not this group that identifies you the only thing that you should identify with is me and when you see in me I am calling all men to myself from every tribe 
and from every tongue. And everyone else may hate the Samaritans, but I'm calling them to me because I love them. And I'm calling out my exodus. And my exodus isn't for the Jews. My exodus is for all mankind. Every race, every tribe, every creed. And I'm calling them to walk as I walk. Don't find your identity in these things. Find them in Jesus. And Jesus is a person who lives a life of reconciliation and he calls us to live a life of reconciliation. So what does that mean? That means this. That means that when we see and hear certain issues, we might have to plan our our journey differently. So it's not okay to take the quick route to Passover. So you're on this pilgrimage for living a holier Christian life. Fantastic. Take a detour and meet with someone who you know is shunned and is on the fringe and make them your priority. It's not convenient. It's not convenient. And it's not for, it's not those trendy third world snaps. Oh, look at me, the third world kid. That people are now using as Tinder profiles. Like that's gonna make them appealing. Dear God. <laughs> Dear God, that's, that's what people do nowadays. That's, that's not what this is. This is, Jesus is saying, we're gonna add a long, long time to this journey. There's gonna be a lot of walking miles added to this. But it's important that you know that this isn't about one tribe. This is bigger than that. And so Jesus presents a different gospel to us. I'm going to pray for us um, for today. And then we're going to kind of um, wrap things up there. Father God, we live in troubling times, as every single generation of human being has. There's never been a time where there hasn't been challenge. Father, I thank you that in the midst of all of this heartache, depressing stories, and um, horrible racial divides, segregations, tensions, murders, killings, we ask that you would bring about your peace for your people. Father, we pray for churches around the UK and around the world that they would take the same journey that you sent your disciples on out of the way, out of the way, but with the intention of reaching out to a racial group that are profiled and rejected and maligned because that's what your exodus is about. May you send us this week to engage with other races, other religions, other backgrounds. May we inconvenience ourselves to understand more about our neighbour and those around us. And Father, may we become more like you because I 100% believe, Lord, that you are calling us to be a part of your mission of reconciliation and redemption. May we bring healing by being examples. May we hear the story of the racist. May we have conversation with them. May we open their eyes to who you are, to who we are, to who the world is, that we can build a kingdom, your kingdom, that is broader and bigger than any one tribe. In Jesus' name, amen.